Um, what I'm about to reveal to you is information that is willfully ignored by city analysts, economists, and the main, mainstream press, which is why nobody really knows about it. Um, Peter Thiel, who, as you probably know, is one of the co-founders of PayPal, is famous for asking the question, what important truth do you know that most other people disagree with you on? Well, this is mine. And before I start, I should warn you that I'm not someone you want to get stuck next to at dinner parties. I am a crashing property bore. Um, to put that into perspective, I've uh, personally inspected over 23,000 properties in prime central London, seen the details of over 150,000 more, and negotiated hundreds of millions of pounds worth of acquisitions for the members of Mercury Home Search. But where I differ from everybody else is that I've combined that with the study of over 300 years worth of the UK um, property market history, which doesn't make me very interesting, but would it be unreasonable to say that I may have a few insights that will help you if you're planning to buy a home or investment property in London. Um, and look, I know at the end of this that probably at least half of you will go, well, Jeremy, that was um, vaguely interesting, but how is it possible in this day of um, you know, technology, the information age, this information is not more widely known? And frankly, I just don't have a good answer for that. It, it's uh, mystifying. But for those of you who take this information and use it, you will have a massive advantage over other buyers, sellers, and indeed the estate agents. So COVID-19 and Brexit, is this the end for London property prices? Well, uh, it's been a tumultuous few years. We had the um, Brexit referendum in 2016, followed by that even bigger shock, Trump into the White House. Uh, then, of course, we had the joy of watching those two political titans, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, backing it out to a hung parliament, and then several years of Tory fighting uh, the rise of Corbyn and various other bits of political buffoonery. And throughout this period, uh, the press has been telling us how Brexit is a disaster for the UK um, and particularly for London property prices. But if you look at what has been happening, prices started falling way before Brexit was even considered a possibility. Uh, if you look at 2014, the Tories won the election, so they were no longer in a coalition with the Red Lib Dems. And then much to everybody's complete shock, they ramped up stamp duty to really quite savage levels. And it was those increases, and there were some other tax uh, changes as well, but the stamp duty increases were the main cause of the price falls. Having said that, those price falls were um, prolonged and exacerbated by all the political uncertainty we've seen since. And, you know, despite the fact that that had uh, been wiped out by Johnson's landslide victory in December 2019, we now have the pandemic and the global lockdown. So does this mean that London property prices are on an inexorable slide lower because of the continued uncertainty? Well, history gives us a very clear indication of what's going to happen. And I say very clear with a great deal of confidence because there's over um, 300 years worth of population in the UK and over 200 in the US. And I'll allude to the US a couple of times because it's the biggest market by value in the world, and uh, but it's based on the UK model. The way they buy and sell is different, but the, um, the way land price accrues is exactly the same. Um, and as in both countries, there is conclusive proof that there is a property cycle that repeats like clockwork. In fact, it has only ever failed twice in 300 years, and that was during the two world wars. So in other words, you need a situation where you have complete economic dislocation, with everything focused on the war effort rather than normal economic production for the cycle to fail. Because let's face it, there have been dozens and dozens of other wars during that period. Uh, and we've had kings and queens and varying governments at varying levels 
of incompetence, but the cycle has always repeated. So the big question is, is does the lockdown and all the economic disruption we've seen on a global level far bigger than uh, during the world wars, is that going to have the same effect? Well, unfortunately, no one who comments in the press seems to have studied the history of the property cycle. They allude to it very loosely, but they never go into any detail. And this is why they are confounded by the lengths of the trends, make pretty awful predictions, and are then surprised by the sudden reversals. Um, this is why the Queen in 2008 said, well, why did nobody see this coming? Well, actually, some people did. For example, Fred Harrison in 1998, um, he predicted that the market would crash in 2008. He got it right to within a month. This is how predictable it is in the property market. Um, but it doesn't matter in the mainstream whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. Both sides get it completely wrong. So if you look at the optimists, they tend to be state agents, developers, and their core argument is that demand is far higher than supply. And so over any reasonable period of time, prices will go higher, which you know, we understand that argument. But if you look at 2007, demand was way, way higher than supply, and then uh, the market crashed. And it wasn't because we suddenly built hundreds of thousands of homes to save demand. Meanwhile, in Ireland and indeed the US, their booms happened on a massive oversupply of property. So the um, supply-demand argument doesn't really hold up to very much scrutiny. Meanwhile, the pessimists also get it completely wrong. Now, the pessimists are held in slightly higher regard than the estate agents. They are city analysts, economists, uh, and respected commentators in the press. But their track record is actually worse. And what I want to do is to show you extracts from articles um, from 2000 to 2005 to show you what people were actually saying, because it's really instructive, because we know what happened. Um, so this is 2000, everybody's agreed on one thing, it's more than the annual summer slowdown, uh, where people were paying silly prices for bad houses, properties are indeed worth up to 10 to 15% less than they were six months ago. 2001. Everyone's agreed again. The telephone number price tags of rather ordinary two-bedroom flats are beginning to look ridiculous. You'll notice, by the way, in many articles that the reporting isn't exactly objective. It tends to be rather subjective and emotional. Uh, 2002, house prices short a plunge. Uh, that's according to Cambridge Econometrics. Anyone contemplating buying a property loan in central London needs their head examined. It's good, calm stuff. Uh, so this is from Ricks, who reported a sharp drop in the number of potential tenants, and uh, the buy-to-let market is something you need to be very cautious about. It is not a guaranteed moneymaker anymore, uh, apparently. 2002, again, the market's been in trouble for some time. Prices being pushed up by a relatively small number of people driven out of expensive parts of the city. That is um, a pretty absurd thing to write, because ultimately, that is how every city in the history of the world has evolved and expanded. Um, 2003, again, is a catastrophe. 2005, after five years of unstoppable price rises, the housing market has been showing signs of jitters. Well, look, we know what happened during that period, and prices were going up, uh, with the brief exception of immediately after the dot-com crash, and then, of course, after 9-11. But otherwise, prices were going up. And showing signs of jitters, well, the market exploded higher in 2006, 2007. Probably the most famous, famous example of somebody getting it wrong was Roger Bootle in 2003. Um, as you probably know, he was formerly chief economist of HSBC and one of the Bank of England's wise men. So someone we absolutely had to listen to because he had a better understanding of economics than anybody else and access to better data. And uh, in 2003, he said house prices will fall by 30 percent 
over the next four years. And if you take on that advice, which many people did, you would have been priced out of the market because they pretty much doubled. Um, now, obviously this is 15 to 20 years ago. Information technology has come on leaps and bounds. Uh, we now have AI, we can scour data in a way that simply wasn't possible back then. So have things improved? Well, tragically not. Uh, if we look at last year, Bank of England has forecasted a 16% dip in house prices due to the virus. And if you're not aware, house prices in the UK were up about 7%. Now, uh, one thing I try to advise people is that uh, generalizations about the property market are incredibly uh, unhealthy and inaccurate. There are areas where prices dipped a bit, but on the whole, prices were up. And so there are a few things I hope you take away from this afternoon. The first is, please ignore pretty much everything you read in the press, because at best, it is far too general to be of any use. You know, what happens in the London property market? I mean, it's garbage. One is in the £2 million market in Belgravia, it's different to the £10 million market in Belgravia, which obviously is different to Notting Hill, Kensington, Marlebone, and so on. Um, and at worst, it is just completely wrong, as you can see from these articles. Um, the problem is that the man and woman on the street laps this stuff up almost verbatim. So, if you want to make an astute purchase, uh, acquire the best property your money can buy on the most favorable terms possible, you need to have much, much better data and information. I will go on record now, and what I'm about to say will have many of you rolling your eyes, shaking your heads, or assuming that uh, I started drinking early today, um, is that in my view, I think property prices will be at least double where they are within the next six or seven years. I told you you'd be shaking your heads. Um, and I'll show you how that will happen a little later. But first of all, I, we just need to look at how these incredibly intelligent people, you know, city analysts, economists, uh, Bank of England's wise men, how they get it so wrong. Because we know they're not stupid. So it has to be because of the data looking, the data they're looking at is wrong, or the models they use are fundamentally flawed. I would argue it's both, but we don't have much time. So I just wanted to look at the pessimist favorite indicator, which is the house price to earnings ratio. I'm sure you've read about it in the press. It's in there virtually every week. And what history has proven is that whenever the ratio has been above 10, sorry, that's a lie. Whenever the market has crashed, the ratio has been above 10. Again, I don't have any problems with that. The problem is, is that conventional wisdom has mangled that particular fact. And so it now tells you that whenever the ratio is above 10, the market will crash, which sounds the same, but is actually completely different. And there are far, far, far more examples in the UK, the US, Australia, and other similar markets where the ratio has been above 10, the market hasn't paid the slightest bit of notice. If we look at 2002 in Bromley and several other areas in London, the ratio was 10.4, and it went much higher than that. But did the market fall or did it stall? No, the market went up massively for five years. Five years, it is a woeful indicator used by itself, and I'll, I'll prove this to you conclusively a little later on. But what about Brexit and COVID-19, given you're dodging the subjects? Well, um, yes, but let's get to them. So uh, Brexit, well, that's been an exciting few years, hasn't it? The, the run-up to the referendum was basically a shouting match between two sides, uh, basically coming up with worst-case scenarios to scare people into voting their way. So the Remainers told us that if we voted out, uh, there would be an immediate recession and unemployment would go through the roof. Of course, the polar opposite happened and unemployment dropped to all-time lows. Meanwhile, 
the levers were painting their own picture of uh, Nirvana, where everything would be rosy and the money we saved um, giving to the EU would obviously go straight to the NHS, £350 million a week. Within 48 hours of winning, they said, no, we never said that, despite the fact there's video of them on the news and, of course, all the posters on the size of buses. Um, tragically, after the referendum, the shouting match got worse. And throughout this period, we were told that uh, this was a disaster for London property prices and that you know, there would basically be a mass exodus. But rather than looking at what the talking heads think should happen, it's often far more instructive to look at what people are actually doing. Uh, this is from the Managing Director of Sotheby's Real Estate in Frankfurt. And so what were they seeing? Well, you know, from London, record numbers of clicks, viewings, and indeed purchases. But what were people actually doing? They were buying or renting one bedroom or studio flats because they would commute to Frankfurt during the week and return to the UK at the weekend. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, I lived in Frankfurt for a year and I'll tell you why. It's absolutely bloody awful. Uh, now, I grant you that is a mildly subjective viewpoint, uh, a correct one, but nevertheless, and apologies to anybody from Frankfurt on this call, um, but I do know that most Germans agree with me. But that aside, we have to look at the fundamentals. And so just as one example, back in 2017, the press were up in arms because they discovered that a certain bank called Goldman Sachs had reserved all the places at the English speaking school in Frankfurt. And this was taken as conclusive proof that the mass exodus was on. But what they didn't uh, report was that the English speaking school in Frankfurt holds roughly 1200 children. So what the bank had reserved, say 120 school places. So let's do some basic maths. Let's say a small number of people, 10,000, move to Frankfurt. And if you consider that the forecast was for a quarter of a million jobs to be lost, 10,000 is a pretty small number for the financial capital of Europe. And let's say a quarter of them have two children. That's 5,000 children. Where the hell are they going to go to school? And it's simply not feasible for people to move their families. And this is true for the whole of Europe. But just an example, Frankfurt the centre of Frankfurt is about 750,000 people. Frankfurt on mine is two and a half million. It is dwarfed, absolutely dwarfed by London. And you know, even one of the directors of the Bundesbank said on Reuters, London will remain the preeminent financial centre of the area. But let's assume a worst case scenario and that nobody from Europe ever does business with us again. Um, and let's face it, although we have a Brexit agreement, there are still lots of holes in it. And um, we still need to look at what people have actually been doing. And so if you look at uh, the first half of 2017, the Chinese invested 24% more into UK property than they did in the first half of 2016 before Brexit. The French, in conjunction with a Hong Kong conglomerate, bought Southwestern Rail. Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, vaguely important companies, all went ahead with headquarters in London, um, or in Amazon's case, lots of warehouses. Um, tech take up in the city was through the roof. In 2018, in the depths of you know, Brexit shenanigans, Corbyn allegedly heading to power, foreign buyers spent more on London offices than they did in Paris, Frankfurt, Munich and Manhattan combined. Does that sound like a city that is going to have tumbleweed running through it? Now, these office figures obviously got hammered last year. Um, although having said that, uh, the collection of office rents was still pretty strong. The the retail and hospitality, restaurants, etc. I mean, they, that has been a total disaster. And this has led to lots of talk about people working from home and a mass exodus from London. And yes, there absolutely have been more people 
buying properties uh, in the countryside, without doubt, um, especially more people from London buying in the countryside. But talk of an exodus is mildly overblown, a bit like the exodus to Frankfurt. You don't want to get the fact, let the facts get in the way of a good story, because the majority of people buying in the countryside have to sell their properties in London, which means that people are buying in London. And a lot of this is also pent up demand. A lot of people who would have moved over the last four years simply didn't because either they couldn't sell their property or they were so worried about Corbyn, much more than Brexit, that they weren't willing to make big moves. Um, but also a lot of the uh, increase in purchases in the countryside have been people buying second home, which actually just demonstrates the sheer amount of money that is out there. Uh, and if you look at the statistics um, up to March 2020, again, going back to Brexit, there were a huge increase in the number of visas granted and the um, skill level increased. So does this sound like a city which is you know, going to be barren? Nobody in it? No, of course not. It's still an attractive place to invest, do business, and of course, to live. And we have just gone into the second half of this cycle. And the first half of the cycle and quite a lot of the second half, as you've seen, as you've seen from those uh, quotes earlier, is dominated by fear because everybody's still so scarred by the crash that marks the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next. So obviously in this case, 2008. Um, and so any price rise in the first half of the cycle, and there are quite big prices rises in the first half of the cycle, um, are met with derision, oh, this can't be happening. Uh, you know, we haven't paid, the, the thinking is we haven't paid our dues in the crash and it was papered over. Uh, there was money printing, the UK is now massively in debt, it's all very fragile. And so any price fall, it seems conclusive proof that another massive crash is on the way. Conversely, when we get to the real boom phase, every price rise is taken as conclusive proof, the prices can only go up. And both viewpoints are equally simplistic and crass. Um, but history has proven a couple of things. The first is that the price falls in the crash at the end of the cycle are dwarfed, absolutely dwarfed by the price increases during the cycle. Um, if you think the bottom of the previous cycle was 92, if you bought then, you could bought in the peak of the previous cycle, 89. You didn't care about the 2008 crash because you made so much money. Um, but more importantly for this cycle is that history has proven that the majority of the house price gains come in the second half of the cycle. Now, again, I'm sure many of you are running your eyes and going, given what are you talking about? How can you say that prices will go dramatically higher than uh, from here? Because they're much higher than they were in 2007. We've got all these issues ahead of us. We've got rising unemployment. We've got industries potentially going, uh, you know, disappearing, uh, Brexit uncertainty, so on and so on and so on. Don't worry, people have effectively been saying that since the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But um, let me give you a slightly more recent example. In 2019, um, a flat in South Kensington sold for five and a half million on a 57 year lease. It had previously been owned by the same family for 72 years. They bought it in 1947 for £6,000. Now, if you told them in 1947 that that flat would be worth five and a half million now, they would have had you escorted to the nearest institution. It would have been totally insane to have suggested such a thing. And that's before you told them it was on a midterm lease. And how many times do you think over that period they were told prices are too high, you've got to sell up? £60,000, you made 10 times your money. £600,000, 100 times your money, you've hit the jackpot. And it's not as if that period was without its issues. So um, the late 1940s, 
the collapse of the British Empire. I would, yeah. would it be unfair to say that that was a slightly bigger issue for Britain than Brexit? Um, then you have 50s and 60s, the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. 1970s, the UK as a sick man of Europe, the oil crisis. Uh, 70s and 80s, sustained IRA attacks. 1992, being thrown out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Uh, 1997, the collapse of the Asian tiger economies, closely followed by um, the Russian, uh, Russian bond default in 98 and the collapse of LTCM. People thought those three things would bring down the global financial system because they were still so scarred by the 1990 crash. But they didn't. Then, of course, the one that everybody was petrified about, which was, of course, Y2K, where all our computers were going to stop working and planes would fall out of the sky. Uh, what a waste of time and money that was. Then, of course, the dot-com crash in 2000, the US into recession, and then, of course, 2001, 9-11. I could go on and on and on. Um, this is far from an exhaustive list, but we'd be here for hours, uh, if not days, because basically there is almost always something to worry about, which at the time seems like the end of the world, but it never is. Unfortunately, most people wait um, for the right time to buy when it's safe. How do they know when it's safe? Well, when it's when the press tells them it is. Um, you can't really make it up. So um, if you look at 2006, 2007, in the run-up to the end of 2005, the press was bearish. You've seen that. But then the last of the bears capitulated, and suddenly we were told it's different this time. Prices do only go up. We had a new paradigm. We'd eradicated boom and bust, good old Gordon Brown. Um, and of course, then the market crashed. Now, I would suggest that if you see the words new and paradigm together in a newspaper article, that you pack your bags and run for the hills, because it is never different this time. Markets are merely a reflection of human nature, and human nature has not changed in millennia. This has a little bit to do with economics and an awful lot more to do with fear, greed, and indeed hubris. But the great news is that we are nowhere near that level of uh, irrational exuberance, animal spirits that you see at the peak of every cycle. So why am I so bullish and um, what indicators do I see? Well, it's all to do with money. Last year, you needed a minimum of 120 million to feature in the Sunday Times rich list. 22 years ago, you only needed 15 million pounds. So over that 22 year period, UK's richest people have increased their wealth by 700%. Uh, meanwhile, probably prices have gone up several multiples, that multiple depending on where you are in the country, and the average wage has gone up roughly 50%, and the FTSE has gone up roughly 10% and still below where it was in December 1999. If nothing else, that should prove to you that talk of how important the house price to earnings ratio is, is utterly useless. It is a dreadful indicator used by itself. And it also belies the other great fallacy, uh, which is that the stock markets somehow have a bearing on the property market. It's actually the other way around. Um, but look, it's not just in the UK. Uh, the total billionaire wealth has increased dramatically in the last three years. And that's obviously true for our high net worth individuals and uh, high net worth individuals, so the people who typically buy in London. Um, but it's not just at the very high end. Um, the press is always full of stories of inequality, but you know, that is a never-ending story because nature, by its very nature, is unfair. And um, you know, it's Pareto's law 80-20 theory. But what is completely underreported is that global poverty levels have fallen at the fastest rate over the last 25 years, which is fantastic news. 
yes, of course, there's further to go, but that is a trend that's accelerating. Um, but as I say, massively underreported. So um, all surveys show that New York and London remain the two cities that the wealthy want to live and work in and indeed invest in. And everything I'm saying here holds true, not just for London and New York, the demise of New York is uh, rubbish in my mind, but it also holds true for all the places where the wealthy like to congregate. It doesn't matter if that's ski resorts, uh, beach resorts and so on. All of these places will do well because the rich are getting richer. Um, you know, Apple, two years ago, has been lauded for being the first trillion dollar company. And yet two years later, it's worth two trillion dollars. The amount of money out there is absolutely astonishing. Obviously, you're pretty well placed to see that. Um, and Bain & Co, in their report in 2012, uh, called A World of Wash of Money, described what they called as a capital superabundance that would drive prices higher and yields lower for longer than people would have thought possible. And they've been absolutely right. And they revisited this in the Harvard Business Review, and they now think there will comfortably be um, a quadrillion dollars in capital by 2025. That is not an environment in which you want to be short of assets, especially land and property. Um, look, prices have fallen over the last five years. Um, I can show you properties that have gone up in price, and I can show you properties that remain flat, but on the whole, and I hate generalizations, but on the whole, yes, they have dropped. But the increases in stamp duty, including the increases that are coming, have been completely obliterated by the falls in sterling, despite sterling's recent recovery. Um, and when you add in the price falls as well, London's looking incredibly attractive to international buyers. And What's really happened, I mean, a lot of the price falls aren't as bad as the press make out, but um, what's really happened is transaction numbers have plummeted because yes, there have been far fewer buyers, but also there haven't been very many sellers because with interest rates where they are, there aren't many false sellers, although there are always false sellers for one reason or another. And the other thing is that a lot of people have in their minds become false sellers because they've been panicked by the news flow. And this is where the opportunities arise and um, you know, we use such situations for the members of Mercury Home Search. But oddly enough, the fall in transactions isn't that odd because in closely fought or what people think will be closely fought election years, transaction numbers in London dropped 30%. It's about 15% for the rest of the country because London is more politically sensitive, I expect because it's an international market. So that is not unexpected, but there are people out there who are saying that we're on the verge of another 2008 or in the more, more hysterical bits of reporting, another 1929. In my view, they couldn't be more wrong because if you look at the, look at the run up to 1929 or 2008, everybody was fully invested and geared up to the eyeballs. Didn't matter if you were a bank, a business, or an individual. You know, the music was dancing. Sorry, the music was dancing. The music was playing, so we had to dance. Um, that old chestnut. You know, we had the Roaring Twenties after a pandemic, and then after 9/11, uh, we had several boom years. Whereas if you look at now it's a completely different situation. There are trillions of dollars sitting idle on the sidelines. You know, in the US alone, there's $10 trillion sitting in US savings accounts. Um, the dominant motion is fear and banking regulations are still very strict. This will change as it always does. And what I'd like to do is to show you the anatomy of a cycle um, to show you how all this, is unfold, this will unfold and how bizarrely COVID-19 and um, the lockdown fits in with all of this. 
So you have the um, crash, which marks the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next. And after the crash, policymakers and regulators need a scapegoat. And I'm afraid the scapegoat is you, banks and bankers, because you're an easy target. Um, so what they do is uh, they let a couple of banks go under, they fine several others, and the entire industry is regulated to absolutely absurd levels, as I'm sure you've noticed. Um, the horse has bolted, but the regulators look as if they've done something, so that keeps them happy. Then the first place in the UK, in the UK to recover is London. Why? Well, in a liquidity crisis, the only people with any money are the rich. And where do they predominantly want to live? London. So London recovers first. And then much to the annoyance and disbelief of the naysayers, London takes off into the stratosphere. Why? Well, once banks are in a position to lend, the only people you're allowed to lend to, uh, because of all the regulations, the wealthy, because they're the best credit risks. So London and the South take off, um, leaving the rest of the country behind. And then London plateaus or falls, as we've seen recently. And this uh, begets lots of newspaper articles saying, I told you so, London is a busted flush. You should be investing uh, elsewhere in the UK, especially up north, because the South is also too expensive. Uh, which, to be fair, is true for a brief period of time but is actually incredibly dangerous, and I'll show you why a little later. Um, and then there is a crisis. Now, I've been giving talks like this for several years and um, at your offices, and uh, I think it was 2017, I said that there would be a crisis in 2019, 2020. And you know, lots of people say, well, given that's not that brilliant. That's obviously gonna be Brexit, isn't it? And I said, no, no, these things tend to go completely out of the blue. So if you look at the last cycle, we had the dot-com crash, which was pretty predictable, but then we had 9-11. And the cycle before that, again, there was a mid-cycle crash in the stock market in the early 80s, um, but there was also the Falklands War and rioting in Brixton. These things always, almost always, come out of the blue. But they're really important because they give policymakers an excuse to do something. Um, and they're able to because banks are well capitalised. Um, so. In March last year, I wrote an article saying that policymakers' um, reaction to the pandemic would be very predictable. There's four things, four main things they would do. First is they would lower interest rates. Didn't take a genius to work that out. Um, but if you look at 2001, we had the Greenspan put. Interest rates came down a lot. Obviously, they couldn't come down that much this time, although they could go negative. Um, you know, they've got negative mortgages in Switzerland. You actually get paid to take out a mortgage, uh, which is astonishing but we may not go down the negative interest rate route. Um, the second point I made was that they would print money, um, but I said they would do it in much bigger size than anybody would have thought possible. Again, it didn't take a genius to predict money printing, um, but the levels they've gone to have come as a huge surprise to most people. But actually it's been possible because A, banks were capitalized, but also politicians are, are under pressure, a decision. And so they have forcibly put people out of work, closed businesses and endangered entire industries. Cynical, but uh, is nevertheless true. Politicians have two goals. The first is to get elected and the second is to make sure they get re-elected. And so they will do everything in their power to put money into the system. And just as an example of that, Janet Yellen, uh, last week or the week before, was saying that um, you know, their proposed rescue plan, although they were very aware of the debt burden in the US, 
her and the president-elect, rather with interest rates where they are, now is the time to act big. I mean, this is Janet Yellen for crying out loud. But anyway, so the money printing is going to continue apace. Uh, then point three, governments around the world will continue and come up with new infrastructure projects, again, to boost employment and uh, the economy. Again, doesn't really take a genius uh, to see that was going to happen. But the fourth point has yet to happen, and this is actually the really important one, and that is that um, they will relax banking regulations. Oh, one other quick point. People are very worried about increased wealth taxes. I have to say that I'm relatively certain, well, not certain, but it, I think it's unlikely that we will see swinging tax increases for several reasons. The first is that um, at the moment, especially with Brexit, the last thing we can afford to do is look uncompetitive compared to anyone else. Um, the Office for Budget Responsibility has said that tax rises don't really need to happen until after the next election. So you can pretty much guarantee no Tory government is going to do anything too dramatic before then because they want to get re-elected. Also, as Ray Dalio has pointed out, um, printing a lot of currency and devaluing debt is the most expedient way of reducing and wiping out debt burdens. This has been going on for millennia. The Romans did it with coin, coin clipping, um, and it is the path of least resistance. So I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that that is what they will continue doing. But the really important bit is actually the relaxation of banking regulations, which hasn't really happened yet. It, it sort of started in, uh, I think it was 2018, when Trump relaxed um, or watered down the Dodd-Frank Act. But we will see it happen uh, much more because politicians have an issue. There is more capital in the world than at any other time in history. I mean, the world is awash with it, but it's not moving. And so the politicians need the velocity of money to pick up. And the easiest way to do that is the interest rates haven't worked is to relax banking regulations. Um, just as an example of what will happen, uh, Boris Johnson, God bless him, um, announced in October that he wanted generation buy. Um, another brilliant soundbite. Because the housing market for politicians is the be all end all. It's one of the reasons why Corbyn got absolutely destroyed in the polls, you know, with taxes on property. And so Boris Johnson wants to get um, more people onto the housing ladder. You know, we've had help to buy and all sorts of other things that artificially boost the market. Generation buy, these are his three main, I should point out, this is a plan, not yet policy. Um, point one is that 5% uh, mortgages, as in only a 5% deposit, should become pretty commonplace uh, to allow more people into the market. Secondly, the old chestnut, uh, banks will need to do less due diligence on lenders so that uh, lending can happen more quickly and keep the market well oiled. Uh, so in no way like ninja loans at all. And then uh, point three, he's mooted that the government should perhaps guarantee a certain percentage of the mortgage to also give banks um, greater safety. Um, now, as I say, that is not yet policy, but if it doesn't give you a good hint into the direction of travel, I don't know what will. And so what will happen is that, and so we're sitting on the largest pile of cash the world has ever seen. And then with um, the relaxation of uh, banking regulations, 
the velocity of money will pick up and prices will pick up at a faster and faster rate and people will become more confident until we get to another 2006, 2007 stage when people generally think that they if they don't buy now, they'll be priced out of the market forever. So that's what people thought in 2006, 2007 and 87, 88. And then prices will go stratospheric and then it will all crash. This is not good news. It is a cycle of boom and bust. And just as I can guarantee the boom, I can guarantee the bust. But that bust is several years away and prices will be considerably higher than they are today, just as if you look between 2001 and 2007. Um, because it's not just this. I mean, there are various other things that are going to um, put more credit in the system. We'll get longer term mortgages. You know, in 2007, a six year old couldn't get a mortgage. Now I think they can get 20 year mortgages. So the natural extension of that is 50 year mortgages for 30 year olds. And um, they have inheritable mortgages in Japan. Um, crowdfunding for property. FinTech is going to play a huge part in this. Um, you know, Airbnb allows you to monetize your property in a way that simply wasn't possible. There, there are so many things, I just don't have time to go into them. Um, and as I say, this will drive prices higher than people think um, is possible right now. And just one final thought on that. Um, the last boom was fueled in large part by Irish, Scottish and Icelandic banks. This time around, it's going to be the big global banks, especially the Asian banks. We're talking a whole different playing field of credit creation. Um, but the problem is, is that the pension doesn't swing smoothly from fear to greed. It judders around. And so most people miss out um, because the average person will wait until the right time to buy. But history has proven millennia after millennia that the right time to buy is never when the consensus thinks it, thinks it is. doesn't matter if it's tulip mania, uh, South Sea bubble, dot-com crash, cryptocurrencies, property. You have to be and I know this is a boring old saw, you have to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Yeah, and at the moment, people are still genuinely fearful. Um, if you, look, you've missed the low of this cycle. The low was uh, 2009, 2010. We're not seeing those prices ever again. But just as the low of the previous cycle was 92, 93, that didn't make 94 to 2005 a bad time to buy, even though most people, especially after 96, which is when they made it back to the uh, 89 highs, who were saying prices were too high. You know, you've seen, that, seen those articles. In London, if you bought well in London, and by what I just mean, a best-in-breed property at fair value, it was still worth more in the depths of 2009, 2010 than what you bought it for. That is not true for the rest of the country. There are, you know, if you bought a new build in Newcastle in 2007, you're still, you probably only just reached parity now. Well, in fact, you reached parity about six months ago. Um, the rest of the country is far, far more volatile because it is more reliant on earnings and the like. Um, but if you bought in 2001, you would have done a lot better. But if you'd said you were buying in 2001, people would have looked at you as if you were mad. You know, we'd have a dot-com crash, FTSE had gone through the floor, we had recession in the US, and of course, 9-11. You, know, you would have been laughed at, genuinely laughed at. I know because... That's when I founded the company and people told me I was an idiot. Probably not without reason. But anyway, it's, it's very hard to do. Be greedy when others are fearful. Um, but it is imperative that you are. Does this mean you should rush out to your nearest estate agent and start buying property willy-nilly? No, of course not. You've got to be incredibly selective. Um, Buffett is also famous for saying it's better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. The same is absolutely true for property because... People get very worked up about getting big discounts. But if it's on a rubbish property, that's incredibly bad news because 
the compounded effect of the outperformance, the increase in value um, over the years is enormous. And as research by Savile showed, between 2005 and 2013, the top 10% of properties in prime central London increased in value by 190%, while the bottom 10% only increased by 63%. That is enormous. Would I, be, would I be wrong in thinking that you might quite like to be in that top 10%? Now, to be honest, you're not going to get that 190% in every area in price range. But whatever your criteria, there will be properties that will massively outperform the rest of the market. Um, so you want to focus on best in breed properties. Do you know how to do that? If not, um, by lucky chance, I've written a book on it. And don't worry, I'm not trying to sell it to you. If you would like a complimentary copy, um, please just make contact and I'll have a copy sent out to you. Because the book um, shows you the proven and tested strategies and tactics I've been using for 20 years to acquire some of London's finest homes and investment opportunities for the members of Mercury Home Search. Um, so this works. Now, I think it's important, you know, that, you know, it's all very well me standing here talking about this, but I bought uh, another investment property in London in 2018 to put my money where my mouth is, because um, in my view, that was a good time to buy because the pessimism was overblown. People thinking that Corbyn was going to get into power. I thought that was absurd for several reasons that I wrote about at the time. Um, and of course, Brexit, which I've always said was a bit of a red herring. Um, because if you look at it, compared to 2007, has anything changed in the way that the property market works in this country? No. Taxes have changed a bit, but taxes have changed throughout the centuries. It's never affected the cycle. You know, there used to be a window tax, for example. Um, has human nature changed in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years? No. So is it wise to think the cycle isn't going to hold? My view is no. So I urge you to take action sooner rather than later but please ensure you buy um, best in breed property because it will make all the difference. Um, so simply request a copy of my book and we'll make sure you get a copy.